0: Take your Bibles out, and let's turn to Revelation 22. Revelation 22. This past week, I was excited because I found one of the rulers I had from grade school. I was excited because my son, Elijah, needed a ruler for his class. But I was also taken back because of the letters that were on this ruler, D-A-R-E. And those from my generation know all about this program. This was an educational program that was meant to prevent the illegal use of drugs. And I remember in the fifth grade, going through that educational program and being blown away by all those types of drugs. You know, it's more than just a pack of camels that can ruin a person's life. Now... Despite the education that my class received, a lot of my peers didn't take the education very seriously. And that's just like things are from day to day. You and I are bombarded by cautions, we're bombarded by commercials that scream for us to take them seriously. And many times people just keep on going without a thought. Most of the time, we go through the day not deterred for a moment from what we want to do. We have an idea, and we're going to do it. And all of us, to some degree, are bent on doing what we want to do, especially when someone tells us that we have to do something else. Well, the book of Revelation has a lot to say. And we come now to Revelation 22, verses 6 and following, and we come to what we would call the epilogue. The story has already been told. And now we're getting the closing statement. The story was, had four parts. And the story told how Jesus Christ will one day establish the eternal kingdom of God. The story told us what that meant for the churches of Asia Minor, And God made that plain to them. And I guess the question now, since the story has been told, we know what the book of Revelation is about, the question is, well, we know what's next. We can't, given what we read now, we can't just say, I know, and now I'm good. Christ actually was not to content just to say, this is what will happen in the future, this is how I will conquer all, instead He impresses upon the churches the importance of what has been said. He says you can't take the message of Revelation and just say it's okay to know it. You've got to apply it to your life. And I say that this last section is all about the story that's been told because you repeatedly see what John hears and saw in these last verses. So as you trace through verses 6 through 21, you'll see John refer again and again to words. Look at verse 6. These words are trustworthy. Verse 7 and 9. The one who keeps the words. Those who keep the words. Verse 10. Don't seal up the words. Verse 18. Warn everyone who hears the words. What words? Well, these are the words that compose the book of prophecy. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book, verse 7. And it says it again in 9, 10, and twice in verse 18. You say, well, what what was written in this book of prophecy? Well, these things. Verse 8, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things. Verse 20, he who testifies to these things things. You say, well, what what are these things? Look at verse 6. God sent his angel to show his servant what must soon take place. These things are future necessary events. There are certain things that are going to happen one day. And to make this very, very plain for every single one of us, Jesus Christ is not significant enough in the world today. Many people can go their whole life and never hear his name. Other people know his name, but only as a curse word, or as an excuse, or as a joke. For now we know that the nations rage against Jesus Christ, but one day he will establish the eternal kingdom, and he will displace all all other kingdoms. He will be the cosmic ruler. And that is news that everyone needs to take seriously. That's what was revealed to John. These things. Say, one day things are going to be different. That's right. One day they are when he comes and rules and reigns. Now, as we look at verses 6 through 21, it divides into three parts we're going to consider today verses six through 11, where we have the interaction between John and the angel. Verses 12 through 17, provide us the last words of Christ, and then 18 to 21 of the closing remarks. We're looking at six through 11, and that divides in half. Each half begins with the phrase, "And he said to me." So the angel is going to speak to John, so we're going to have two subpoints. So very simple outline today. First major point is that we should take the book of Revelation very seriously. And that is because God affirms that these things will happen soon, because He has sent His angel to show these things that must soon take place. Furthermore, folks then need to know about them. Folks need to know about them. Let's look together at verses 6 through 9 where we see that God has sent his angel to show these things that must soon take place. Verse 6 says this, And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. God has sent his angel, and his angel has a message. It is for his servants. That is the term for his slaves, those who recognize God as the one who's in control, their master. He's telling them necessary future events. And just like you or I send a text message or write a letter so that people know something, God sent a message because He wants us to know something. He wants us to know something about the future. And you say, Well, how can someone tell me about the future? That sounds impossible. Well, it's actually really simple. You can tell the future if you're in control of all of it. If you're in control of everything. And God is in control of everything, so God does know the future because he has absolute power over all things. So God does have the power to do this. And the angel commended these things to John and to God's servants. Look at verse verse 6 there. It said, He said to me, The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. So we're supposed to believe these things because they're trustworthy. Now, young people, look up this way for a moment. What orbits the earth and shines at night? The moon. Do you realize that people have walked on the moon And and some of you knew that before I asked the question, right? But some of you didn't know that. So what you did just now is you looked at your mom or your dad to see, is that really true? say, why did they do that? Because we have this sense as a human of wondering, is this the truth? We turn to our parents and say, is that true? And they nod their head, and then we believe it. For some reason, we think that if mom or dad says it's the case, we believe it. Now here the angel is saying to John and to all of us, what you've heard, it seems impossible, but it's true. You need to believe it. So God is graciously compelling us to believe what we have read. That it's true, that it's worthy of us trusting, of saying this is right, this is true. But not only can we say that what it says is true, but we also need to do what it says. Look at verse 7. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Not only should we believe these things, we need to obey these things because Christ is coming soon. This book is not simply meant to inform us. It is also meant to instruct us. When we read it, We're supposed to respond to it. You remember the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, James, who wrote in chapter 1 that we need to be hearers and doers of the word. Remember how James uses the illustration of a man who walks up to a mirror and sees himself in the mirror. And the point is when you look at yourself in the mirror, you need to fix what you see before you go away. You need to be not someone who looks at the mirror and says, whatever, and goes away. You need to be a hearer and a doer of God's Word. Now, the Apostle John, who records the book of Revelation, he puts it this way. The words of this book that you've heard, you need to keep them. Keep the words of the prophecy of this book. That is to show us this point. The doctrine of future things is always meant to change you and me today. The doctrine of future things is always meant to change us today. The Apostle Peter said in 2 Peter 3.11, Since all these things, the heavens and the earth, are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Peter is saying, When you know about prophecy of future things, that ought to make you Holy ought to make you godly, ought to make you a happy, righteous person. John is saying the same thing, but with some different words. And what he calls the people of the churches of Asia Minor to do again and again, or I should say Christ calls, and he records it, John records it for us, he calls them to overcome. So as you go through the, the letters to the churches, Christ calls the people To overcome, he says, to the one who overcomes. Sometimes the people needed to overcome by enduring, but most of the time the people needed to overcome by repenting of sin. We need to know that and we need to heed the call to repent. And not only do we need to heed the call to keep the words, but we need to realize and fasten in our minds, the person who keeps this is blessed. He's blessed. You should want to be in the situation where the guilt of your sin is cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ and where Christ's character shines through your life. That situation, brothers and sisters in the Lord, is a blessed condition. Those who live with guilt and despair and without purpose, that's not a blessed life, but that's what most people live. But we who know the Lord ought to live like this. And there's a reason for us to heed these words because it says that Christ is coming soon. Some of your versions say that he's coming quickly and that's a little bit of a different idea. When it says quickly that he comes, that is to say when he comes, it will be with speed. But when it says soon, that's trying to say in proximity today to today, he's coming soon. His coming is the next item on the cosmic timeline. And it seems that that sense is very appropriate here. When you go to Revelation chapter 11, we saw the woes. And it says the second woe is past, the third is soon. That is to say, it's the next one. It's next. There's nothing intervening between this and that. So the point here is that Christ is going to return. It's the next event. It could happen today. I don't know but it could happen today and therefore what it ought to put in us the sense that we ought to get from this kind of statement is the same sense that you have when you realize that company is coming at any moment and you frantically try to make finishing touches on the house right you get ready when people are coming even so when you realize that Christ is coming we need to get ready Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 46, Blessed is that servant whom his master will find at work when he comes. So God has given this information to us so that we can be ready when he comes. And John received these things from God. Look at verses 8 and 9. Verse 8 says, I, John, and the one who heard and saw these things. So John talks about his involvement in this revelatory process. And we've gone over this a number of times, but I really want to drive this home that this whole book is structured on John's prophetic experiences. He had four major experiences. In the first one, he saw Christ among the candlesticks. In the second one, he saw Christ opening the scroll. In the third one, he saw Christ on a white horse making war. And in the fourth, he saw Christ united with his people. John saw Christ. This book is about Jesus Christ. He was the one who witnessed it. And the reason we're told that is because we're meant to believe these things because John witnessed them. This is not an experience that everyone has. This is an experience that the Apostle John had about 95 A.D. And as we think about these things, as John thought about these things, and then he hears, Behold, I am coming soon. In that moment, it seems that John mistaken who he was speaking with. It says this in verse 8 and 9, And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. So God uses an angel to communicate this marvelous message of what will happen in the future when Christ establishes his eternal kingdom. It's a wonderful thing, but that doesn't make the angel worthy of worship. It makes them worthy of respect, just as we ought to respect anyone who proclaims God's word to us. But it doesn't mean that they're worthy of worship. There's only one person who's worthy of worship, and that is God alone. So we ought to worship God for these things. It's unique that this book of Revelation, which is about many, many future things, it's full of worship. We see worship in heaven by the elders and the angels. We see worship on the earth as the earth dwellers worshipped the dragon and the beast. And you remember what the angel said who flew through the skies and said with a loud voice, Fear God, give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Chapter 14, verse 7. The point is, what people worship kind of shows what side they're on. They either choose to worship God or something else. And that's where everyone lands. God or something else. Most people choose something else else. say, why would I worship God? Because He made you. Because Christ died for you to redeem you of your sin. That's why you ought to worship Him. And God is very graciously making these things known in verses 6 through 9. Now let's consider verses 10 through 11 where we see that folks need to know about these things that must take place. The angel is impressing on John the importance of people becoming aware of this. John, folks need to know about your experience. They need to know what you saw and what you heard. Look at verse 10. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Well, what does it mean to seal up words? Well, we're going to find out by turning to chapter 10, which talks about a similar experience. It talks about the same experience, but the opposite experience. Back in Revelation chapter 10, you recall that John saw a mighty angel. This was a huge angel. It says that he had one foot on the land and one foot on the sea. And it says that he calls out, and when he did so, seven thunders spoke. And John was about to write down what the seven thunders spoke. But the angel said to John, chapter 10, verse 4, seal up what the seven thunders have said. And do not write it down. So, through reverse engineering here, if seal up means don't write, then don't seal up means write it down. So John, record these things because the time's near. And obviously John did record them because we have them before us in our laps, in our Bibles. It was imperative for John to write because the time is near. And the point there is that Christ is coming soon. And if Christ is coming soon, who needs to know this? Now you might think, well, people not here need to know this. People out there need to know this. But actually, the first people who needed to know about this were the churches of Asia Minor. Because Christ said, for example, to the church of Pergamum, that was the church that lived in Sin City. But the problem was that Sin City lived in them. He said to that church, verse 16 of chapter 2, Repent! If not, I will come to you soon. There's the same term. I'm coming soon, and will war against them with the sword of my mouth. So Christ's soon coming is meant to lead His people in the church to repent. Secondly, Christ said to the small but steadfast church of Philadelphia this, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. So the second reason is that Christ's soon coming is meant to steal his people in their faith. So what Christ's coming meant to those churches is supposed to mean the same thing to us. Many, many years later. So let's apply this together. If Christ's coming was supposed to impact the Church of Pergamum as it was, is there a sin in your life or my life that we need to overcome given that Christ is coming soon? That is to say, it's time to repent. Christ is coming soon. Secondly, do you feel alone in your commitment to Christ or wonder at all the sacrifices you make to bear with other people and spread the gospel? Is that kind of how you feel as a Christian? Like you're struggling through? Then Christ says, remain faithful. I'm coming. I'm coming soon. Stick it out. Another way to apply this, the fact that John is commissioned to write this down, if he's told to write it down, then wouldn't it be our responsibility to study what he wrote? You know, a lot of times the book of Revelation is passed over. I know some of you have heard the book of Revelation preached three times now. You've heard it before. But there are many other people who tell me they have never heard the book of Revelation preached on. On top of that, many people in their personal Bible reading completely skip over this book. So I want to emphasize that if John was obedient to record it, we need to be diligent to study it and not avoid it. We need to know about this book. John needs to record it so that folks can know about it. And furthermore, we are to proclaim these things, as we learn in verse 11. We need to proclaim these things. It says this, "...let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy." And you look at that and you shake your head and say, what does that mean? Well, at first, it appears that this is fatalistic. The evil folks do evil. It's like everyone's stuck where they are. It's as if this book were apocalyptic and the good guys are going to win, so stay good. The evil guys are going to lose, stay evil. There's really no redemption in this book at all. It's very deterministic, apocalyptic literature would say. But instead of that, this is an exhortation. It's stressing the imminency of the return of Christ and the necessity for immediate choice. It's the echo of this saying, as you are now, so you'll always be. It's an evangelistic call to people to consider, what path are you on? There's a broad way that leads to destruction. There's a narrow way that leads to God. And everyone travels one of those paths. They travel the path that they want to travel. And one day, the path people want will become the final answer. You remember the show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? You give your answer, and then you say final answer, and it's locked in. Well, people have an answer. They're doing what they want. And what they perhaps don't realize is one day it'll be locked in. What people want, they'll get. They won't be able to change their answer. Given that's the point, don't put off following Christ. Don't put off becoming his follower today. When the time's up, there's no more opportunity. You know, God doesn't consult with people after they die and say, you know, I understand you were kind of surprised by the time that you died, and perhaps if you had had more time, you'd had time to think about this, but now that we're here together after you've died, let me give you one more chance to think about this. Do you want to be on the broad way or the narrow way? You know, God doesn't give a second chance after death. The point is, the only thing that you can... Change is what you're going to make the change to today. Because when Christ comes, it'll be locked in. And your decision today will be a decision forever. Now, I want to share two more points on this verse. First, given the fact that it comes immediately after verse 10, this, book, this verse is trying to address how people respond to the book. They respond in this way. When people hear the book of Revelation, they respond in one of two ways. They refuse to believe that Jesus will come and rule and reign, or they humble themselves before him. That is to say, this book is dichotomizing. That's just a great way to say it splits people into two groups. It's like a knife stroke that splits something in half. And we know that. And I want you to understand that you know that by asking you a question. In the course of our study together, have you ever hesitated to invite someone to church because you realized in that moment, but we're studying the book of Revelation. And I don't know if someone wants to come listen to the book of Revelation. I don't know if we should expose people to that. They'll be confused about all that future stuff. Actually, what's going to happen is that people are going to come face to face with the reality that Christ will one day come and rule and reign, and that Christ is calling all people to submit to him today. It's like the preaching of John the Baptist who said, Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Or it's like the preaching of the cross. People hear it, and they either reject it or they accept it. And the point here is to proclaim the message even though someone may reject it. The gospel, the preaching of the cross, appears to some to be foolishness, but to some it is the power of God unto salvation. So it must be presented. Don't hesitate to let people know that one day Christ will come. And they need to be aware of that, and they need to respond obediently to it. Secondly, this verse speaks to God's people with encouragement. This is meant to encourage us. Those who do right and are holy will one day be confirmed in their righteousness. You know, think with me for a moment. We go through our days and in many ways because of how fluent we are, we're able to insulate ourselves against a lot of pain and hurt. Of course, we still have pain. We still have hurts. But the things that are most painful and the things that are most hurtful to us are the things that we caused. It's the things that we did that keep us up at night. The wrongs we've done other people that we still decades later remember. We've said cutting words that wound. We've done thoughtless things that have hurt other people. We have lots of regrets. Brothers and sisters in the Lord... One day, we will never say another word that cuts. We'll never do another thing that hurts. Because God will make us like his son, Jesus Christ. He will glorify us completely. And the God who we loved will change us to be like himself. And that is a wonderful, hopeful message for all of God's people. All of our days of, I did the wrong thing again... Those days will be over. We'll be with God, and we'll be righteous like that. And that's just a beautiful, beautiful thing. So let's take the book of Revelation seriously. God, at the end of this book, says, you've got to do that. I've given it to you. I brought it to your attention. You need to trust what it says, and you better be listening to me because Christ is coming soon. So it's a warning. It's an encouragement. Now, people take warnings in many different ways. People took the D.A.R.E. program, and it doesn't seem to have done much at all, it seems. That's what the studies say. That's what my peers did. But you know what? When it comes to the coming eternal kingdom of Christ, you have to take that seriously because His coming will impact every single person who's ever lived. So it needs to impact us today. Father, help us as we consider these things not only think about them and believe that they are true, but to live like they are true. Help us to be those who repent of sin and those who are faithful to endure suffering for you. No matter how difficult it is, how lonely it may be, no matter how many may be set against us for agreeing with Jesus Christ, help us to love you to the end knowing that you'll provide us the grace to do so. Encourage our hearts, Lord, that one day all will be set right, and even that which is still wrong within us will be made right, and we will walk and live before you in righteousness. We look forward for that day, and we pray that Christ would come soon in Jesus' name. Amen.